But as long as you know how a camera works, you can learn all on YouTube and, and online and books. And so when I studied that, I started to just make things on my own and and you can kind of experiment and then become better at the craft um, from there. So it's kind of learning by doing. I think Quentin Tarantino had a great line. He said, I didn't go to film school. I went to film. Welcome, friends, to Obviously the Future, the podcast that explores the massive trends that will shape our world in conversations with the trailblazers, nonconformists, and hidden, ex hidden experts who are building tomorrow today. Who do we have today, Arvin? Today, we have our youngest guest ever. Uh, he's a sophomore in college at Harvard, which we'll forgive him for. But more importantly, he is an up-and-coming filmmaker. And... I first came across him on my YouTube feed, a short film called Nothing Except Everything. And normally when something comes up on your YouTube feed, you expect some pretty lowbrow content. But this was a real piece of art. And just the more I looked into his story, the more impressed I was with his journey. He's really kind of exemplified to me the idea that everyone is an entrepreneur and how he's taking over his learning journey and how he's trying to do that. So I'm really excited to talk to him, find out more. I actually am willing to put it out there. I'm predicting that if he wants to, obviously he's young, but I think this guy could win an Oscar someday. Awesome. Well, that is high praise. Cool. Well, welcome, Wesley. It's great to meet you and really excited to talk to you here. All right. Well, it's great to be here, guys. Thanks again for reaching out. I'm really, truly honored. I want to start with the hardball. You know, when you make your your feature length film, when you make your version of everything everywhere all at once, when you're accepting some award, how will it feel to know that your braces will be forever your first film to be found on YouTube? Are you ever going to remove that? Or are you happy to ha have that history just forever etched with confessions? Um, of the I innocent? think I'm going to, yeah, <laughs> I think I'm going to have it forever there. I think a lot of filmmakers like Kubrick, I know he like burned like the actual film of his, his movie just to get rid of it completely. But I think it's interesting. People can see the investment that was there still from the start. So I, I think it's just funny, you know, at least. Yeah. How old were you in that? I was 12, I think. Yeah. That's actually okay. not my first film. The first film I ever made, I can't even find it. So it wasn't like I purposely got rid of it, but I can't find it anymore. <laughs> nice, nice. Okay, so tell us a little bit. How did you get into film? Tell me a little bit about the journey of how you first fell into this space. Yeah, kind of like most filmmakers, it was mostly by watching movies at first. So just falling in love with the art of movies and wanting people to feel the way I felt after watching a good movie and just being so inspired by them. So Whiplash was one of the first ones I can remember of just being so thrilled by it and not realizing how a movie can just take you on this experience, this thrilling kind of immersive experience and really feel like you're in it. And then from then on, I was like, oh my God. And then I researched Damien Chazelle. He went to Harvard as well. And he's one of my idols. And I just met him virtually last week, actually. And that was the craziest experience ever. I was like, Damien, Damien, you know? And he was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, whatever. And from there on, I just made like really, really small short films with my brother and my dad starring as like, you know, detective and serial killer and, and just working my way up from there and proving myself to that with every film of just convincing bigger and bigger people to work on my projects, basically. Nice. And how did you learn the craft? So you develop an interest. How do you actually start to learn the fundamentals of what, is it just experimentation? Is it on your own? What, what <clears throat> role are resources playing in your learning journey? How are you figuring out? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. I think for filmmaking, it's a little different from stuff like math or science, where it's much more like you can't really just learn by doing because you don't know how to start. But as long as you know how a camera works, you can learn all on YouTube and, and online and books. And so when I studied that, I started to just make things on my own and, 
and you can kind of experiment and then become better at the craft um, from there. So it's kind of learning by doing. I think Quentin Tarantino had a great line. He said, I didn't go to film school. I went to films. Nice. And what about on the distribution side? How did you figure out like budgeting? Like, how were you thinking about it? It seems like from the start, you've taken a very, I don't know, you haven't ignored the business side of it in terms of thinking about well, the budget of something. How do you raise money for it? How do you actually think about promoting what you're, you're doing? How, was that always the case? When did you start to think about the, the actual, I don't know, the economics of what you're trying to do? Yeah, definitely not at the start. I think it was always just a hobby and kind of something that I never really saw as a career. But then when I was like, I want to make this a career, then my parents were like, how are you going to do it? You know what I mean? I'm like, all right, I'm going to show you. And then I started like fundraising and like just begging friends and family for their money. And and starting from there, I just figured out what would each thing cost. And it's kind of like a startup. Like I see every single film as a startup. It's individual thing because you're, you're trying to market a product. You're trying to sell it. You're trying to make it. So all the same components. So one of our investment themes at Avalanche is in, in beliefs about what's obviously the future is that everyone is an entrepreneur or they'll have to learn to mm. think like one. And um, I think that's what drew us to your story is that at such a young age, you were entrepreneurial. And so we'd love to hear your reflections on how you, you've taken a hobby and, and thought about long-term, short-term entrepreneurialism. Yeah, for me, it was just, I, I just don't like working for other people in general. So I was forced to like figure out a way where it's like, okay, I'm going to, you know, try to lead something. Like my mom is an entrepreneur. She runs something. So she kind of inspired me to take risks like that. It has to yeah, sell, go. right? And so you were, you sold your film, um, you know, on Indiegogo <laughs> and we were watching your video with the very like coming of age clips and like you and emotive yeah. captiveness. So it's like everyone's it's, you don't have a boss, but you definitely sold your vision to a bunch of people. For me, it was like, okay, I want to make a coming of age movie. Let me compile some of my favorite coming of age movies and build that feel of like that, why people love this. So finding the core of like why people love coming of age movies and harping on that. Although the, the finished product isn't exactly a traditional coming of age movie, but I think I wanted to harp on that as, as least as a selling point for well, why big people want to watch it. difference of like you today versus Quentin Tarantino is he had to go move to LA and then, you know, convince a couple of mm. studios to take him on. And technology has now uh, driven down the cost so that you can remove the middlemen and go straight to an audience and say, this is who I am. I'm going to pitch to you. I don't need to convince yeah. one person behind a desk. Yeah. I can. Con it's yeah. so much more permissionless. Yeah, it's permissionless. Totally. Can you tell us a story about how you came up with the like what you did for Mute? Yeah. So I found it on Reddit actually, and a lot of other studios studios now are even doing this. They're literally going on Reddit into like horror, especially horror stuff, because there's a big, big market for that right now. But I'm just like finding short stories that random people write and optioning them for over like six but six digit like budget like numbers it's crazy and and so it just goes to show like it's so decentralized and what comes out at the end is just like good ideas you know yeah i, I think it, it's definitely inspiring a lot more like people that are young like me and I have, I have a friend named kane parsons he's going along a similar route he had a movie blow up on youtube with 52 million views and he's making a movie with a24 now and some of the biggest people in hollywood and he's 18 um and so he was about to go to college but now he's not anymore and we're represented by the same managers. And it's interesting, me and my managers always talk about this, of like, they're they're obviously onto something. They're trying to find the next wave of people that are doing things in a new way, very entrepreneurial. And 
unfortunately, you still kind of need the support of the studios right now, at least in the film industry, just because they have such a monopoly on the distribution system. Still, there's it's regarded as like YouTube is lesser content than the films that are put out on Netflix or in theaters. And so I think we're trying to find a way to change that where the product value and and technicality of it becomes like the gap becomes much, much smaller, whereas a way of like, you know, distribution will just decide everything in a way, you know? Yeah. What is your generation kind of, how do you view YouTube? Like, do you think of it as lower class, lowbrow? Obviously, it's something that's been very, very helpful for you with the, the way that nothing except everything's blown up there. Um, yeah. but how, how do you think about YouTube? Is, is it something that's just a stepping stone and you want to leave behind? I think um, my at my generation, at least the people I talk to, not many people think of it. They kind of just consume the content, but at least the people that are really thinking about how YouTube is, is unique in a way, no one thinks it's a lower class kind of content because there's still the kind of algorithmic demand where it's just purely like what it kind of purely aggregates for what you want. You know what I mean? So that's why things like YouTube and TikTok, and obviously TikTok is like a shorter form of YouTube, but it's so decentralized where um, you could just find the content you want. Um, yeah, I wouldn't view it as a lower class, but I think that a lot of YouTubers want to turn into filmmakers because there's more, there's still like that, again, the distribution monopoly, still there's more money there. And I'm what I'm trying to do, I think is down the road after I become established in my respective field of filmmaking, um, of still working inside a studio system, but in a unique route. For example, like A24 is someone that I really, really want to work with because they are exploiting um, social media and, and technology in an interesting way. So I think once I become integrated with that environment, then I could move on to do my own thing and actually kind of upend the entire system. I don't want to say, I, I don't, I, definitely it's not just going to be me, but it's going to be yes, a ton yes. of people who are also thinking the same kind of way. So that's the goal. Nice. Okay. So you kind of defy stereotypes in some respect. You don't, you don't expect many film directors to also be singers, but much less to be chess players. So I, as I looked into your background, I find out that you're a chess superstar. So tell me a little bit about your chess journey. What, what got you into chess? Yeah, it was, it's funny. I started when I was like five or four. It was like my whole life for up until I was around 11 or 12. And I found filmmaking. And it was basically like my dad, he just showed my brother a bunch of board games when he was a kid. And my, my brother just liked chess the most. So he started playing chess and he was pretty good at it. And then I always, my mom likes to tell a story of like me, like watching my brother playing, like playing his co with, with his coach. And, and I was always like, no, I want to play. And I was like four years old. And so they let me eventually like touch the pieces and play around. And then I kind of, again, like self-taught, but also with my dad and just like teaching me how the pieces move. And so we started going to tournaments and and eventually like I just won more and got more coaches and they realized I was really, really good. And then so I was traveling the world, uh, the world next, next day I knew it and representing the U.S. at some of the biggest stages, 11 time national champion, six time All-American. So kind of was thinking going homeschool for that, but didn't want to lose my friends and, and kind of wanted to have a life outside of chess. And I was always very drawn to the arts. I was always like writing and creative stuff still when I was like a kid and when I was like eight. And then around 11 or 12, I, I found filmmaking and diverted to that. Well, I have oh, a question. Was your brother also a chess champion or? Yeah, he was, he... he was, he was very good. He wasn't as good. He was like, he was like, um, I don't know why I'm saying it's not very good. He is very good. It's like top 20 in the U.S. for his age. Whereas I was like top like five or four. And so it's is, funny. Is this like a Serena Venus? Serena? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he's trying to be so polite right now. It's like this family drama is going to come out when this episode's released. Oh my <laughs> God. 
there's so much rivalry in our in our family but he's very very nice and supportive he's like super like i i would get jealous if i was on his end but he's like he's he's nice and supportive. he even donated like 5k to my last film because he's going down the much more traditional route of like data science at meta and so like my parents are like all right we got one in you know like we can take a risk <laughs> nice well I i'm like a queen's gambit covid pandemic picking up chess player mm -hmm. uh so my peak rating was like 1710 and okay. i was like oh i'm feeling hey. pretty good and then yeah. i looked I, I went i went down the rabbit hole and realized that even at the age of 10 your rating was ahead of me so it, that was a depressing uh, fact to learn but on the other side i'll give you a little piece of trivia here my mom's brother is the five-time world champion in chess and often considered one of the greatest chess players of all time. So I'm, and, I'm not, of course, right? But yes. that's crazy that you're your uncle. Yes, my uncle, yes. That was a big <laughs> wow. reason never to play chess for me. Because if that that was always, when you're a kid and that's your uncle, you don't want to go anywhere near a chessboard. That's crazy. But I could see where the genes comes from. You're like 1600 without any like practicing really. So that's that's yeah. impressive, man. Yeah. So, well, not really anymore. It, I, I, if I could play you at 10, then I would try, but <laughs> now it's, now it's too late. Okay. So the question I have about chess, why it's interesting to us is I have this pet theory mm -hmm. that chess is like the most interesting place to be looking at what's happening in AI because it's been several years ahead of the AI revolution elsewhere. Mm -hmm. There's been so much development with like alpha zero, alpha go, like all the, all the engines and how fat, how much we've been relying on computers to advance chess. And people are really right now, there's a lot of buzz around, can AI become the future one-to-one -one tutor for how we learn math, like Con right. Conmigo, et cetera. And I don't know, I don't want to speak for Caitlin, but I tend to think that this is a little bit overhyped and mm -hmm. we're not one-to-one -one tutoring. No, there's such a value to someone like your father or one of your coaches so that one-to-one -one tutoring did technology how did technology play a role in your chess chess journey and do you think like do you think that there's any ever going to be a world where someone could become a great chess player simply learning through yeah. just learning by computer that's such a great question um geez i mean for one, like they definitely wouldn't enjoy it. I think I think a lot of the reason I played chess was because like a lot of my friends played chess and there was a community that, you know, and that was so easy to access in that way. So I think that's a big, big part of it. I think same thing. And I think it's interesting because in filmmaking, I've, it, I think things like ChatGPT I've been using to assist, but it hasn't been a replacement in that way. You know what I mean? It's been a way to like, if I need ideas quick, then I'll be like, okay, generate like 10 log lines for me. And then I could kind of play off and you can kind of have a, a conversation with them, but it, it's still like, like there's something different about the human interaction for sure. Was all your coaching personal or did you have? For chess, it was, yeah, it was all personal, but like we'd use computer assistance to be like, let's check our answers. Let's see if like we were on the right track and let's see what actually was the best move, you know, in this position. Yep. And what about with you? I think you started doing some chess teaching yourself. So do you use technology in the way you? Yeah. Uh, for, for things like openings, it's interesting. Cause like in chess, like I'm sure, you know, openings are very, very theoretical where it's like, you can calculate up until a certain point and then computers can take over. Like you can not like, like for, for the first part, like you can kind of be like, okay, what's the best move for like eight moves. But then after that, there are like a Google amount of positions possible. And then you kind of need to figure it out on yourself. And a computer won't teach you how to think. They'll only teach you like, what's the best move, you know, but in a way of like, yeah, maybe AI could get to a point where they can learn how to teach. Yeah, it's an interesting thing to think about. Do you write all of the films yourself? So you're both um, the, the writer and the producer and director? Yeah, 
Yeah, the majority of it. But I think for me, it's mostly like, what's the best product? So if I think someone else can write it better, mm. I, I find a co-writer. So for example, I'm making a horror movie. I feel like it wouldn't be as personal for me to, to make that as much as nothing except everything. So I'm finding people who are really good in the horror space to like help me write it. And for example, Arvin brought up the Reddit post. Uh, I literally just saw a script on Reddit and I thought it was so good where I just reached out to the guy. He was like, you have it for free, bro. And like, I just want my work out there. And then I was like, perfect. And then, so we co-wrote it together. Um, so it's really just the best product. Yeah. Nice. Okay. So I want to transition a little bit, talk a little bit about the role of school. So obviously you have these two extracurriculars that are like clearly very time intensive that you're like mastering in some respects. So, and then I, I, I know you went to like a very reputable school. So tell me a little bit, how did school support you in your journey, inhibit you in your journey? What was the role school played in your learning journey? Yeah. Yeah. That's such an interesting question. Not something I get asked a lot. So something I have to think about because like, for me, like I loved learning things in the kind of decentralized way of like Wikipedia and YouTube were like my Bibles, basically. Like I just learned everything from there. And like, you know, you could just go down rabbit holes. So in that sense, the biggest thing was like the community of people you could talk with and talk about these ideas with. And yes, the, I was lucky enough to go to a school that was very, very academically um, challenging. And so it, it already motivated me and, and everyone around me to, to do better. I think it depends for a lot of people, but at least for me personally, schooling was, was more so like a, a place where I can interact with other people and, and, um, but what you know obviously there's an opportunity cost with your time right like you can right. only spend time studying chess uh studying for your ap exam or working on a film right like there's only yeah. one of you to do those things uh, yeah. so like wh wh where did you find the trade-offs and did you find that the the school system allowed for some flexibility because you had a talent and a passion that you were pursuing yeah it's interesting okay i'm not gonna say this broadly again but, but for me i think honestly like even at harvard it's a thing of like it, it feels like I'm doing it just because like I, I have to, and it would be, there would be a stigma surrounded around me, like not doing this traditional route. I think it might be interesting if there was a way where education, maybe you still have to find a way for people to be introduced to subjects um, through a core kind of curriculum still of, of like, so they're introduced to some stuff at least. So they're, they, they have the flexibility to go, go into them by themselves later on. But I think if you allow them at an earlier age, rather than 18 or 22 after college to kind of go on their own path and start excelling at, at something they're really, really interested. In. I think there could be more innovation as a whole. Preaching to the choir on that. So you said you considered homeschooling. Is that, was that seriously ever considered or in the family? And what, what was the thought process there? Cause that would have allowed for that to just in your home environment to have that type of innovation and that type of flexibility. What was the yeah. conversation like there? Yeah, it was always a thing where like I wanted to go to Greece or South Africa to play a chess tournament, but the school allowed me only like 20 or 25 days off, right? And so that was the always problem. And I was like, all right, let's just go homeschooled, right? And then at the last minute, I was like, I'm going to miss my friends. And low key, that was the only reason that I, I eventually stayed in school. But I'm, I'm glad to have stayed in school. A lot of my best memories were my friends and everything. So yeah, it, it was definitely felt like more of an inhibitor. And, and I, I always felt like I wanted to do other things. And luckily, my parents were very supportive of that. If you would have gotten the Thiel Fellowship, do you think you would have left? Or like if it was something like the Thiel Fellowship, but maybe more for the arts? I know it's more science yeah. oriented. I think I think right now what I'm what I'm getting is something like the Thiel Fellowship with support from a lot of people. Like for example, yeah. um, I'm gonna name drop here, Darren Aronofsky, who's one of the you know most popular directors of our generation. He reached out literally a few days ago and and his email, his whole email was, I just watched your film. Can you drop out of Harvard? And all lowercase. <laughs> It's hilarious. And and it's kind of like a Thiel Fellowship, right? It's not 100K, yeah. but it, 
it's like this guy who's it's basically 100k it's even more it's it's possibly so yeah yeah so i would if there's a concrete opportunity where there's a reason for me like for now i can still write because right now it's kind of just writing and taking meetings where i can do that virtually but if there, if i have to go into like production and something gets greenlit then then yeah well, here's one of the interesting things, right, about like, especially the Ivy League. So I went to Duke and Ar Irvin went to Yale. Basically, like the average GP at Harvard is like 3.95 or something, right? And so like the real thing about Harvard is just that you got into Harvard. Right. Not at, like, right. And there's no real like cognitive performance increase in the four years that you're there. So I think it's really smart that you're just using it as like a campus somewhere. If the optionality is good. Basically. Yeah, the grade inflation is crazy over here. And like, I'm taking very easy classes, especially I know a lot of people who who want to do academic work and everything. It's completely different from what I'm doing. They're, they're yeah, putting totally. all their work into like becoming the top of that field, which is a different path and very respectable as well. Yeah. And it's like you would go that that was also my experience at Duke, right, is that you're learning from academics whose career path mm -hmm. is only they've only ever experienced academia. So, of yeah. course, like if, you're, if you want your apprentice to be an academic, this is what you should do. Yeah, the tenure thing for, I think, Harvard, I can't speak for other Ivy League colleges, but it's really, really weird, like how professors get tenured. It's not about them as a teacher. It's more about them as an academic. They review their right. work as an academic. So this is a big critique I think a lot of people at Harvard have. You get tenured by, they, so you, you submit your work, your documents to this, these, this to the council, and then they they ask like the top 25 to 30 uh, people in your field. Like if you're an economist, they ask like the top 25, 30 economists in the world, like, how is this guy? And so a lot of it is just like relations as well. You know what I mean? It's it's not even um, at the end of the day, like how how you can inspire and teach students. I have a completely different question here, which is you seem like you just keep successively getting getting better as a filmmaker and then you have nothing except everything that blows up. You know, chess, you become a national champion. You, you get into Harvard. Typically, the filmmaker journey is like failure after failure leading mm -hmm. to success, whereas it seems like for you, it's like success after success compounding. Have you had failures yet in your filmmaking journey? And if not, what kind of validation are you looking for? Is it internal, external? What are the kind of markers that drive you? Yeah. By the way, I just want to say like, this is like the best interview I've ever had. Maybe it's just us meshing in terms of like what we're interested in, but also like you guys are very, very like asking them all the right questions. But to your point, I wrote an article about this on No Film School, which is very fitting. It's about how, I think there's two things. I I experienced failure at a quicker rate than most people do. And which means I've had more successes at a quicker rate, but also I was lucky enough to be born, and this might sound very accurate, but like just with talents like that, I think it's just different. You know what I mean? But also my parents and my friends were very, very supportive. And so it's a combination of all these things that led me to the success that I've, I've had at 19. But I think what drove me and motivated me was like just seeing other people do it and be like, I feel like I could do it too. Like if they're getting all the success, I feel like I could do it. And and I was lucky enough to have the confidence already. And, you know, confidence expounds when you do it and then you're like, oh, I did it and I thought I could do it. That means whatever I think I can do now is probably true. So, um, well, yeah. like nothing except everything. When the film was complete, were you like, I'm damn proud of this. I know it's great. Or did it feel very different when the algorithm starts hitting and you're like, oh, one million views, two million views. Like, oh, <laughs> shit. What does it feel like? How does that change how you how your perception of what your work is? When I finished the film, I was so confident in it and I already had a bunch of support coming into it of like producers being like, this is like one of the best scripts I've, 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 I've 
like red, but like they always have this thing at the back of their mind, like he's 18. Like, so it's like, it's a qualifying factor that always dumbs it down a little bit. And it's the same thing when you're submitting to other traditional forms of media, which is like film festivals. Film festivals, they had a big, big prevalence in the past, but now it's it's much less because now you don't need to go to Sundance in order to show your film to the biggest executives. You could just have it blow up on YouTube, for example. And so when my film didn't get into like Sundance, South by Southwest Tribeca, there was a whole like, wait, maybe my film isn't that good. And so in that kind of sense, it's it's somewhat discouraging. So it was only kind of after I saw the success that I had on YouTube, where I was like, I, kn- I knew it, you know what I mean? A lot of it's luck too, I guess. I think the older you get, you also realize that those stale sort of systems, any like Tribeca or South by Southwest, yeah. if it's been around for a long time, the politics behind getting in are not about any sort of merit of, what's being presented but the like money and the people and the personalities and that's one of the themes that we are very interested in at avalanche is the sort of new mediums of merit in our society so that people can distinguish themselves and they can get access to opportunity and capital and relationships without having to go through stale gatekeepers yeah i love it i that's all that i stand for that's brilliant that i really really like what you guys are doing yeah though i my more generous interpretation caitlin of what you said is that there's so it's not that the, what gets into Sundance isn't good. It's that right. there's so much high quality stuff that they can yeah. use politics as like the they can use these other factors to differentiate. Yeah. Yeah. This conversation is making me reflect because I, I, one of my friends is a really top like up and coming documentary filmmaker and she's my age. So she's like 37, 38. Right. And she's doing her first like film and getting donations. I was trying to get her to do a like a fund rate of open fundraise. She didn't want to thought it was very like low brow. And then she's like talking about Sundance for 2025 and like all the things they're doing to like line up in advance. And I was just like, Oh, this can't be the way of the future. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Completely agree. Yes. And unfortunately I think she has a point where it's like, I even felt that way where it's like, and I still maybe even feel that way. You still have to play into it a little bit just because, but I think as People, more people like us evolve where it's like they're yeah you start seeing this I think it'll just change you know it's, it's mostly about awareness I think first okay so tell me something we ask this of all our guests okay so yeah. tell me what's something that you feel from your experience that you feel is obviously the future but most people around you maybe haven't realized yet don't don't yet fully understand I said I would have an answer for this one. Education is interesting of like what I what I laid out. I mean, there's no way what we had in the 1700s and 1800s is still like the best way to go about it. So I think that's something that will be changing. Well, I mean, when you talk about the education side, let me tell you this. From my standpoint, I think high schoolers, it's like you have your standard curriculum and what you learn in high school. I think right. we should spend less time about on that. And I think the three core skills that every high schooler needs to be armed with when they graduate yeah. is one, they need to understand how to tell stories. It doesn't matter if you're a filmmaker like you, no matter what profession, when you want to be an entrepreneur, you need to sell someone on something, you know, right. whatever you're doing, the art of persuasion really comes down to how you tell a story, how you make someone feel something. Mm-hmm. And that's a fundamental skill that everyone needs to have a baseline level of, even if they're right. not, not going to be a filmmaker. Second is they need to have an understanding of the stats and finance. Like they need to have a, a, a basic mathematical mastery that's not calculus based, yeah. but that has like an understanding of like, how do I budget? How do I think about my economics? How do I think about what I own and where, where I want to get to from a wealth standpoint? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the third is, which I don't know, we haven't talked about it all, but the third is I think is like 
the point of mental fitness. Like we have a generation, I don't know, the, the rates of depression and depressive thoughts amongst high schoolers now is like, I don't know if you see this on uh, it, it, on campus, what whatnot in, in your communities. Um, it's, it's crazy. But I think instead of thinking about it from like a mental health, how do we deal with the issues standpoint, I think we need to be thinking more proactively in terms of saying, how do we think, just like you think about your physical fitness, how do you think about your mental fitness, your routines there? How, how is that part of your life as you're an adolescent, as you're going through this age with social media, with all the forces that are on you? I think it's more important than ever that kids are armed with how they keep their own mental baseline and how, how they think about their mental health. Well, well Leslie s- said, you said that you, you're, the key was your confidence to learn, right? Yeah. You're, yeah. So that, that is like the flip side of mental health is that if you have self-confidence, like what Wesley had at a young age, then you don't have to be anxious or right. Cause you, you're like, I can learn my way through this. Yeah. 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 I love both the points you guys brought up and, and so Arvin's like three, I, I never even thought about it that way, but it's an interesting, it's, it's, that would definitely be better than what we have now. I think already immediately. So yeah, I like that idea. But I do want to ask like questions to you guys because I'm very, very yeah, curious. Go for like, it. Like, yeah. like a lot. First, like, I guess the most basic stuff, like just tell me like how you got started in this, like what sparked your kind of, let me make in a, a unique kind of VC firm. And, you know, because obviously you guys have done a lot of things in education that are more traditional in the past than they were. Yeah, I guess I could start. Well, when we both, so Arvind is a year younger than me. I graduated in 2008 and he graduated in 2009. And we both mm-hmm. went and worked in consulting firms. And during that time, and I, th- I was thinking about this before our conversation, like imagine a world without an iPhone. Okay. So like when we graduated, people didn't have iPhones. You still had Blackberries and it had like a little yeah. red dot when you got like an email and, it, and a keyboard, you know? So the world was just like a very different place. And that was like the job to do if you weren't going to be an investment banker because you could travel and expense your like d- dinners and live in a cool place. And it was really difficult, at least for me to conceptual, like I was like, well, I need to earn money and gain my freedom. And I can't conceptualize a more like creative existence or something of like that I actually wanted to do passionately. But then both of Arvin and I found our way to Pearson, which is a 150 year old education company. But we had a boss, Michael, Sir Michael Barber, who's a very innovative global education system expert. And he really had a belief in young people like that. you could find talent and give them a lot of responsibility and they could run with it. And he had a lot of innovative ideas about how you could change education systems. And we had gotten the mandate to develop this fund to invest in chains of scalable, low-cost private schools in emerging markets. And it was kind of this like, who'd ever heard of something so crazy. So Arvin and I had this experience and um, like we're traveling all over, like we're in Ghana, Nigeria, like remote places, like wow. in the most rundown places in these schools that charge like less than a dollar a day. Yeah. It, we're, we're going all over the world, just seeing what education looks like on the ground. And like, it, we were part of this revolution where the, the, the traditional thought was like, everything has to be public school because private school is like a rejection of the system. And we were part of this like revolution that's like, actually, it's like these government schools in many of these countries are failing their populations. And the parents that have no money are choosing to take a dollar and spend it on a private school because it has gives their their kids some option of something better. So like, why wouldn't we try to fund those help those become a little better and like, take the next step. So there's no point ignoring that those, those private schools are not 
failures that are exploiting people. They're providing opportunities for people through markets. And we we're part of this revolution. It was like, it really was a, a, a crazy time. Oh, well, that doesn't end there. So <laughs> Arvin and I were going after it. And Arvin has a connection of a journalist who could write an article. Like we wanted to get more press to build mm -hmm. people to our movement. And there's this journalist for like Wired magazine. And I take her around the Philippines and she writes this scathing article about how we're trying to like privatize. Wow. Like, there's this article like, you know, Pearson's quest to take over schools. And like Pearson yeah. basically reacted very negatively to this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so then Arvin and I tried to raise extra, we tried to spin out the fund and keep doing this and raise external capital. And, and we failed. Like it was, <laughs> it, it, I mean, it was brutal. It was yeah. brutal. Uh, and there's yeah. way more money these days in the like last 10 years. So like for young people and like, like we, we needed, we needed our YouTube moment. Like we needed our nothing except yeah. everything to like show people that we were young and inexperienced, but the gatekeepers were too strong in this environment <laughs> for us. It was, it, we were trying to get into Sundance, but we needed some place to go on YouTube. So then I okay. co-founded a company with my old boss and we grew that and, and sold it to private equity in November. And then Arvin went and worked for a private equity company that was buying schools. And so like he earned good money through that. And then we're like, okay, we're now have enough money. Yeah, yeah. And we're like, okay, like, we're going to build this from the ground up. We want to only do things that we only want to work with people that we love. And then yeah. we only want to put out things in for the world that we believe in. And I'm very excited. Well, this, this is going to be your nothing except everything as well. Like you already have the backing, but I hope your podcast also more people listen to this and be like, I see myself in them and we become like this cult, but like good. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, um, yeah. No, yeah. This is all really, really. I love it. I love what you guys are doing. I could not say more yes. about how much I resonate with you guys. At Avalanche, we invest in companies that transform how people learn, earn, mm -hmm. own, because we believe that that's, a, that's like the journey of, of any successful career. And so, you know, yeah. you learn the art of filmmaking and then you can earn by doing like these partnerships. Like how do you see yourself as, as like an owner of your creative output or after you graduate from Harvard or decide to drop out and do a few more films? Like, do you see yourself like starting a studio or a new platform or maybe this is too speculative, but. No, it's not at all. I, I, I as I mentioned earlier, I think I want to do like really good in the industry that I'm in first and then be able to have enough power already where I can transfer that power into my own kind of business where it's like, yes, I'm doing and Yeah. I'm, I'm creating my own work, but also just creating a different system in which I think, which would have larger impacts on how decentralization happens in the world where it's like, I can create my own business to support other people to be their own masters. Nice. And what's next for you right now? What's on the horizon? I know you're studying economics. Is that right? Yeah. So economics, um, still kind of staying there at least, you know, getting, not failing. Um, but yeah, working on just taking meetings, but also writing. Not failing for an Asian means like three, seven, maybe three, eight. So, no, I don't no, know where no, the GP is. <laughs> My threshold has become lower and lower for not failing uh, yeah. as the years have gone on. But it's, it's been, um, so yeah, just like writing and, and trying to get my first feature made. And so that I could use that leverage of like, oh, this 22 year old, okay, he's, he's doing crazy things now. Like then I could have more credibility to actually start something on my own. Nice. I know nothing about this industry, but if I were to offer any advice from this, which is the fact that this has blown up, I feel like 
so much in my childhood, like my Asian upbringing, everything. I was always about keeping optionality. Like, okay, you go, you, yeah. you go to a consulting company, all your options are still on the table. Yeah. Prestigious, you have all the options. Every time I always wanted to preserve optionality. What if I want to do this? What if I want to <laughs> yeah, go yeah, there? Yeah. And as I've gotten older, more and more, I just realized reducing optionality is where all the alpha is. It's where all the things you want to do in life, everything you want to do is actually not in keeping, preserving optionality is a trap. Everything about that is like a trap that sucks you in with the allure of what could be next. But actually, if you really search, you know what you want to do. And exactly. there's no point not just going after it. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, That's my so one thing, Caitlin. Wow. Yeah, that's really good. So speaking of advice to your younger self, Caitlin has a running list of books that she would recommend to her younger self. So for you, you're still young. So it's a, it, I don't know, I don't know, like 14 year old you, like what's a book that you would recommend to your younger self? That's so funny. I I, I, I don't know, because you're a filmmaker. So I don't, I, I don't, I don't want to give you the out of recommending a film that you should see earlier. I think you got it. We got to stick with the format of book here. Oh, no. Yeah, that's the thing I was about to say. Like, I don't read. I used to I used to read a lot, but they were like, they're like stupid books. What actually I would recommend is this is such a basic answer, but something in film, like just honestly, like story by Robert McKee. It's like the foundations to telling a good story. And I think I would have, that would have drawn me in and saw like how stories can be told in a scientific way. And, and I think that's really beautiful, and really interesting. Nice. Maybe you could also give us a couple of film recommendations. I know you said Whiplash before, but what are a couple other favorites that really, you're like this, this is a masterpiece. Mulholland Drive is one of my favorites just because mm. it's so subconsciously stirring. It's the definition of what is so hard to do, at least for AI. It's like, if everything is made by AI in the future, I think that'll be the hardest thing to make. Like, like. That like truly is like exploring something so deeply inside of you. Um, what is this about? What what is this? It's, it's a it's a David Lynch movie about it's an amnesiac who, who falls in love with an actress or at least connects with her and and it's just this surrealistic journey in L.A. It's very trippy and and weird and mystery. I, I guess that's it from our end. Just so you know, nothing except everything I thought. Even me being a boomer, I still I felt like it really captured high school existential angst really well and took me back to that place. I was like, yeah, I remember back in those days. Like now I like a completely different headspace. I got kids, a family, but it was funny. I got transported back to that, that place. It was very well done and I really enjoyed that. Excited to see what lies ahead for you. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much again for inviting me on. I'm starting a high school in North Carolina. Okay. That's going to be um, the high school of the future. Okay. And I'm so, and, and I'm going to make you come give a storytelling seminar to our kids and like work with them. I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to be like, dude, you were on I'm the pod. You said you were into this and I'm in, I'm in Arvin. I already told you I'm in. I don't say I'm yes. in without a joke. Yes. So. It's on recorded. So you, you can't back out <laughs> yeah, now. I know he's holding against me. He's like yeah. blackmailing me now. Yeah.